Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Wednesday, January 17th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump promises his followers to be their sword, their retribution. Okay, let's check out the counteroffers. Joe Biden says democracy's on the ballot. Abstract, but plausible. The Democrats say they're the party of the average guy in terms of tax rates. Sure, values, maybe not. Abortion, yes, if the average guy is a woman, which is either a lot less or a lot more progressive than I ever intended it to be. But really, in terms of government, government doing things for you, get in there, protecting institutions that serve you, standing up for the forces that actively make your life better. Well, we got to win. Here's a win they could point to. A federal judge weighed in and promised all Americans, don't worry, you will still have access to your cherished, beloved, well-regarded, private, but protected by the public utility. It is a brand synonymous with dignity, affordability, and respect for the individual. Spirit Airlines has been saved. WGN-TV with details. Federal judge siding with the Biden administration and has blocked JetBlue Airways from buying Spirit Airlines. The judge ruled the $3.8 billion deal would reduce competition. Justice Department sued to block the merger, saying it would drive up fares by eliminating Spirit, the nation's biggest low-cost airline. JetBlue had argued the deal would help consumers by making JetBlue a stronger competitor against bigger rivals dominating the U.S. air travel market. Yes, federal intervention does happen, and when it delivers, it delivers a brand synonymous with quality so low, it's the 99-cent store of airlines and a loft bus station. In terms of gifts to just starting out comics, Spirit Airlines is on the Mount Rushmore next to Arby's, Nambla, and Nickelback. And finally, the FAA yesterday proposed fining United Airlines more than $1 million for skipping safety steps. Even worse, Spirit put black electrical tape over the check engine light. This morning, JetBlue agreed to buy Spirit Airlines for $3.8 billion. It's historic. This is the first time anyone wanted Spirit Airlines. It's normally the last choice behind, can't we just walk from Albany to Rochester? This is how a comedian's brain works. This will sum it up perfectly. I was on a Spirit Airlines flight and there was like a medical emergency. You know what they come on there like, is there a doctor on board? And everybody was panicking and I was just like. <laughs> I go, there's no doctor on a Spirit Airlines flight. They don't even have a slogan at Spirit Airlines. They should. It should be like Spirit Airlines. We're the best you could do. It's like telling Spirit Airlines not to serve you peanuts that fell on the floor of other airlines. That's what they do. Spirit Airlines, if you wanted to eat clean peanuts, you should have flown Delta. Over the holidays, an unaccompanied six-year-old child was put on the wrong Spirit Airlines flight. Okay, it sounds bad, but that headline is very unfair. Every Spirit Airlines flight is the wrong flight. 
Spirit Airlines has delivered more mirth than all the big carriers combined. The JetBlue, what, are there some jokes about, what, potato chips? What is it, 2005? JetBlue wanted to merge with Spirit so that their combined forces would amount to the fifth largest airline. That would be after American, United, Delta, and Southwest, which... Even after this deal went through, which it didn't, the big four would still account for more than 80% of America's air traffic. Quote, today's ruling is a victory for tens of millions of travelers who would have faced higher fares and fewer choices had the proposed merger between JetBlue and Spirit been allowed to move forward, said Attorney General Anthony Blinken, who definitely flies America United or Delta whenever he goes anywhere. And that statement, when you think about it, comes with a lot of baggage, which is $20 for carry-on, $40 to check-in on Spirit. I understand the antitrust considerations, but if you could save just two customers a year from deep vein thrombosis from a Spirit Airlines seat, haven't you really served justice? The ruling, after quoting from the Les Mis song, Master of the House, not kidding about that. Reasonable charges plus some little extras on the side. Charge them for the lights, extra for the mics, two percent for looking in the mirror twice. Here a little slice, there a little cut, three percent for sleeping with Worries about a JetBlue acquisition increasing spirits prices. But it doesn't spend any ink on wondering if a JetBlue acquisition might also raise spirits customer experience. JetBlue, as the ruling notes, does offer the most legroom in coach. Why is the assumption that Spirit's prices are going to rise rather than Spirit's amenities, I don't know, no longer mimicking a Romanian detention center during the reign of Ceausescu? Did you know, this is true, I read this in reading the 113-page ruling, that half of Spirit's revenue comes from selling customer add-ons? Add-ons like uh, better seats or some snacks or something to drink, you know, generally things that the Geneva Convention should have disallowed the denial of. I'm just saying, rather than worrying about a new fifth-place airline and what that might mean for the cheapest flights known to man, perhaps consider some of the upsides of no longer disgorging plane loads of angry travelers onto the municipalities of Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, or Las Vegas. People, hundreds of people at a time, who are perhaps a bit ill-tempered after being kept in a large veal pen in the sky. Maybe the combination could actually benefit the consumer. A mixing of the blue and the yellow, perhaps yielding much more than green. On the show today, will us or won't us be sullied by the charges put forth by Donald Trump's lawyers in the Georgia election interference criminal case? But first... We continue our conversation with Matt Brunig, who is a lawyer, an economics expert, a socialist, we should say. He would say. He does say. And in fact, he says it at greater length in our PESCA Plus interview, even more. And we get into some of the, oh, I have some suggestions for Matt on how to come across as a little more cuddly. You'll want to hear that. And if you'd like to try out the PESCA Plus service for free before it's disallowed by a federal judge, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. Extra 10 minutes talking about abortion and choices on Twitter. But with it or without it, we bring you Matt Brunig up next.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, he got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're joined once more by Matt Brunig, a lawyer, former staffer at the National Labor Relations Board, an economic expert, and one of the areas that Matt often writes and thinks about is economic inequality. And I noted to him, it wasn't bad in the 60s, it wasn't bad in the 70s, and we had quite a bit of unionization then, but unionization has gone away, and sector unionization, which is what they use in much of Europe, which has proven effective in raising the salaries of the average worker. That's never going to be instituted here. So what does he think? What's the path forward? Yeah, we did have more unions there. And and the unions in the U.S. do also pursue uh, wage compression where they exist. Um, We saw that recently uh, with the UAW. Uh, That contract that they uh, hit, it actually shrunk the wage differences between auto workers quite substantially. Um, so, you know, it's not just get more from of the profit for the workers. It's also uh, shrink the differences between the workers at the plant. Um, and we had a lot more unionization there. So it's it's not as complete uh, as, as their system, but it does do something short of that. The government can affect wage compression through minimum wages, uh, which has a small effect. And then, of course, through progressive taxation. Yeah. I have a theory that if America had adopted the median Democratic senator's tax policy over the course of my lifetime, uh, much of the conversation and consternation about income inequality wouldn't exist. You subscribe to that theory? Uh, well, that's a very specific claim. I don't know. Well, who was I, the yeah, median? Yeah, I know you go by data. <laughs> what was the median tax plan every year? I don't. I don't. I don't have a good uh, record of all that in my mind. Uh, yeah, I don't have the exact data in front of me, and we could get it. But my point is that m- even though people on the left will talk about corporate Democrats and will inveigh against uh, giveaways, f- for the most part. All the tax cuts were uh, enacted 
driven by Republican economic policy. And I don't know that every Democrat was willing to throw himself or herself in the way of those, but they didn't want it. There just wasn't enough Democrats to have the tax policy that the Democrats wanted. And had we had the tax policy that the Democrats wanted, you know, look at the votes. I I understand what Clinton did with his economic overhauls, but in general, look at the votes. They all happened above the, uh, beyond the objections of most Democrats. So that's one of the reasons I come to that conclusion. Yeah. I mean, you know, taxing the rich is always a very popular thing when you poll it. And so you can imagine uh, Democrats, you know, especially when they were very welfare shy and, and maybe they still are sort of welfare shy, at least enough of them. You could always just kind of say, hey, we'll cut taxes in the middle and we'll make up for it by adding taxes on the top. That's that's a very popular kind of almost moderate vote getter. Um, but, you know, that that didn't really materialize. So a couple more questions. Uh, Matthew Desmond wrote a piece in the New York Times magazine. It was part of his book. And his basic thesis was the reason that we have all this uh, inequality is because of exploitation. And you, in a couple of fora, including a pretty good uh, audio one, podcast, maybe YouTube, dismantled this idea. Can you tell me what's wrong with the idea that you know the reason why the poor are poor is because people who have more money just exploit them? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a couple problems with it. One is just that the way we, this is a very technical problem, but the way we measure poverty is based on income. It's not based on consumption. So most of the stuff that he was pointing to would never get picked up in a poverty measure. Now, that doesn't mean it's irrelevant, but if, you know, you're getting screwed out of, uh, uh, you know, interests or rent or something like that, that's not going to show up in a poverty measure because it's not income. It's, it's on the spending side. But the second thing is that, you know, if we look at a, if, if you look at other countries and you have a kind of general theory of how poverty works, what you recognize is that first and foremost, the vast majority of poverty is driven by people who don't currently work. And most of those people should not work, right? They're children, they're old, they're disabled. Some of them should, and in a good economy, like, uh, you know, the one we have now, arguably, <laughs> uh, they, they do get employed. Um, but that, that's just what you see over and over again. It's those individuals who make up the vast majority of the poor. And even the, the people who are not those individuals, if you look into their households, you'll find that those individuals are in those households. And if you got rid of them, you wouldn't have the poor. I did a, a calculation for a paper I wrote many years ago called the Family Fun Pack, where I just wanted to show what would happen if you just imagine there were no children. You just subtracted mm -hmm. all the children from yeah. the economy. Okay. I'm thinking of that John Lennon lyric. Imagine <laughs> there's no children. <laughs> how, Sorry, Julian. <laughs> how much would poverty fall? And on the one hand, of course, well, you have no more poor kids. But it's also the case that poverty among adults would fall pretty dramatically because, uh, you know, poor adults often are that way because they have children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that drags, that increases the amount of income they need to be above poverty and it drags them below the poverty line. So, so uh, what is the, and I like the family fun pack framing, which is let's give all these benefits, but let's not grouse about it and talk about how much we're spending. <laughs> let's have it be fun for the people who uh, get the benefits. But why were you bringing that up with the amount of uh, how immiserating ch children are? Oh, yeah. Well, it's just to show that, yeah, yeah, basically that, oh, that was part of the, uh, I had said the children cause two, the 
children, there are two problems with children in a sense, as far as income distribution is concerned. One, they need money, but they don't make money, right? That's what I call the mere addition problem. So that was demonstrated by just, well, what if you subtracted them? Um, And then the second problem is that people have kids in their 20s and 30s, but they don't really make uh, their big bucks, you know, until their 40s and 50s. And so we have a mismatch of income over the life cycle and fertility. And so that is why it makes sense to pull some of that income forward through taxes and benefits. Right. So it's not anyone being exploitative. It's the very fundamental nature of children. Do you think something is lost when we reach for explanations like uh, the rich or the middle class are simply exploitative? We, We won't come to the right policy solutions? I think so in the in the context of poverty especially which is what uh, Desmond was writing about. I think you have a couple of problems in the economy from an egalitarian perspective and these things sometimes get mixed together in ways that aren't useful. So you have kind of general inequality and poverty which is mostly driven by people who don't work and the fact that our economy doesn't directly provide any income to them. And that's where you're going to need taxes and benefits to make that you know, work. Then you have inside the sort of uh, uh, market, the, the factor income market, where people make wages and interests and profits. You have that's where you kind of have that classic socialist exploitation sort of explanation, right? The workers, uh, you know, some of their wages are being siphoned off to the rich, and people are living off of it. And there's a lot of exploitation, even outside of money, just that power dynamic where you're a worker and you're employed and you're, you know, the managers have so much more control over your life that that can be really bad. And you see a lot of situations where it leads to obviously sexual harassment, things like that. That's all downstream of just the fact that that's a very unequal relationship. So it's useful not to cross those streams, uh, but people do it sometimes. And do you think there is an analogy between that and analysis of the racial wealth gap? In other words, Desmond is saying it's the bad exploitative people causing this condition and talking or thinking about the racial wealth gap as be, because America is racist. Is that helping us towards better solutions? Well, I mean, as a descriptive matter, right, uh, the wealth is a more interesting case, obviously, because that's uh, built up over time. And so it is a lot easier to say, well, look at uh, look at just straight up exploitation and deprivation that occurred 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years mm-hmm. ago. That's not irrelevant because wealth is accumulated over time. So there, you know, it comes in. And wealth is obviously going to be a function of both what you get from the market and what you maybe get from social benefits. And of course, they make that point there. They'll say black individuals were excluded from certain social benefits like the GI Bill. So, you know, that well, wealth is a different quantity that I, perhaps incorporates both aspects to it. But uh, poverty and inequality uh, is, I think, a, a slightly different thing from um, issues involving the distribution of market income. Right. I, the w- racial wealth gap is real. Um, it is has certainly been caused by racist policies in the past, but it's also but maybe they're mostly in the past. I mean, if I posited a situation where up until 1964, one sector of econ- of the economy just 
almost couldn't build long-term wealth. And then I said, what will this, even if remedied and even if uh, imperfectly remedied, but even if generally remedied, give me a sense of what will this look like in 2023. Wouldn't surprise too many people who know how compound interest works that we'd have something like a huge gap, right? Yeah, I mean, it could be the case that uh, there aren't current contributors to it, if you will, and that it's just a hangover from the past. But the question becomes, well, do are we going to do anything about this? Or do you want it to be that this particular group is kind of always sorted disproportionately into the bottom half of, of the wealth distribution? Um, I think the wealth talk gets more complicated by the fact that we have racial wealth disparities, but we also have enormous overall wealth disparities. So the bottom half of society owns less than 2% of the wealth, and most of the people in the bottom half are not, are not black. Certainly, most of them are white. So that's where I think you run into a lot of frictions that are maybe make as a political matter it not that useful to focus specifically on black wealth. Because if you could just shrink the overall wealth disparity, that's going to heavily disproportionately benefit black people without creating, um, what do they say, uh, resentment from uh, white people like, uh, you know, like my own family who might say, well, wait a minute, I own nothing. <laughs> you know, I have... I've got less than $5,000 to my name, and you're saying uh, you know, I'm a beneficiary of some kind of wealth uh, expropriation. That doesn't seem right. Right. Um, and I'll throw another thing in there. I think the latest statistics indicate that the r- racial wealth gap, and this is because of uh, benefits that were um, given out during COVID and other factors, but the racial wealth gap really shrunk. Now, it's easy to shrink something when one a variable is starting off at such a low point. But from what I calculated, the old statistic for every $10 a white person owns, the a black person owns $1. Um, now it's not a 10 to 1. Now it's a uh, 6 to 1 ratio. But that's a significant shrinkage. It's not like we got less racist because yeah. of COVID. Yeah. Well, that, that's the interesting thing about the wealth statistic. And I've written about this before in the context of some of these plans to shrink it is the, one of the main ways people try to calculate is they compare the median to the median. Wealth is an interesting stat in that, one, it can go negative. So it's not bounded by zero. So you can have- Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the median wealth of the 75% of black America is zero or below zero, is zero actually. It's not that low because the median black family does have positive net worth. So it's got to be less than half of that. I don't know what the precise number is at the moment. But what it does is it creates a weird situation because let's say you take the black family that just got over zero, you know, like they have $10 of wealth or whatever, and you compare them to the white family who's at that same part of the white distribution. So let's say this is at the 30th percentile. Well, that white family might have $1,000. And so they, they have $10 versus $1,000, and you go, oh, my God, the gap is massive. And it's like, well, it's because of the weird thing with zero. Once you just get over zero, you can get these huge gaps. But that's not really, that's not really a good indicator per se. Um, so when you use means, it was always quite a bit smaller. Um, but the other thing with medians is you can shrink it real easy as well because if you just punt, if you just manage to get a little bit of extra wealth right there around the zero bound you can get a huge percent reduction because going That's from say literally like, what happened post covid yeah and like 
it's <laughs> it's kind of misleading on both levels. You know, the 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 first stat was misleading because it was taking advantage of the fact that you have that zero thing, and then and then this stat is. But you know, I guess you kind of you make your bed and you lay in it, right? So if that was yeah. the stat you were pushing for so long, and now it's it's halved in like a year. I can tell you, yeah, that's not really that big a deal, but you know, that was the stat people were, were pushing. So I agree. Uh, I, and how this actually plays out is that many of the, uh, say journalists whose beat are the inequality beat just ignored the new, the new statistic. I guess it's, uh, when inequality gets more equal, it's no longer on the beat, but to go back, it was a, bad statistic to begin with. It wasn't, it was maybe cataclysmic, but not in the exact way they were describing it. And so when it seems to improve greatly, it's not a real world improvement because the original stat wasn't really reflecting actual conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'd written many pieces about this before the recent, uh, change um, because a lot of the efforts to shrink the racial wealth gap were focused on what I would say sprinkling a relatively small amount of money right around the black median and then taking advantage of the fact that the percentages are kind of really weird around the median because the median is so close to zero dollars for black people and that that's got everyone off because you'd see these pieces that would say baby bonds, which is this proposal to give some money to kids right when they're born and then they get it when yep. they're 18 or whatever, baby bonds would would cut the racial wealth gap, you know, dramatically. And you'd say, how much does this cost? Almost nothing. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> how could it cost almost nothing and shrink this massive gap, you know? Yeah. And the, and the answer is because just a few dollars seems to have this massive effect, but only because of our poor measurements to begin with. Yeah. Statistical quirk, basically. Yes. So just like in words, maybe not numbers, how bad's the racial wealth gap? Um, unless I haven't done the numbers in a while. I mean, I think it's, it's about, if I remember it was, it's like $5 to $1, something like that. No, but I mean, like, how bad is the racial wealth gap in America? If you were explaining it to uh, a visitor from another country who doesn't even really speak numbers. How bad in a kind of normative sense? Yeah. Uh, is it, uh, you know, I we mean... We have an enormous <clears throat> racial wealth gap. We have a bad racial wealth gap. We have a racial wealth gap that actually is not as bad. Like, how would you say it? I would say it's very big. Uh, I would say it's very big. Now, I would say that you know, it's, and these things get complicated how you want to frame it, but black people are disproportionately uh, in the bottom of the economy and the bot and the gap between the bottom and the top is very large. And so kind of mechanically, that's the result that you get. Um, you know, implicitly the racial wealth gap uh, idea, if you're trying to close it without also closing the just overall wealth gap, what you're talking about is, essentially increasing the wealth of, say, the top 10% of black people by a very large amount, because that's kind of where all the action is. That's where all the white wealth is owned. The top 10% of white people own 75% of white wealth. And then the same for black people. The top 10% of black people own 75% of black wealth. And, you know, the bottom zone, almost nothing. So if you were to just close the gap without shrinking the overall class gap, you would basically just give you know, uh, I don't know exactly how much now, but hundreds of billions of dollars to kind of the wealthiest top 10% of black people. And then that would kind of bring them on par with the white distribution. And I don't know, that's just that. Is that what we're aiming for? Is that the, is that the game here? You know, right. Oprah, you get a billion. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jordan Oprah needs to get moved up to the Bezos level because now you've got an equal sort of literal top one person, or I guess Musk now, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's great. So in other words, how bad's the racial wealth gap? It's bad. How bad's the class wealth gap? Pretty much exactly as bad. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, yeah, so way worse, I would say. And I would say these two things are quite connected to one another, you know, because one of the ways that racial discrimination works is you just get slotted into the lower parts of the economy, education, housing, things like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, it would be nice to you don't want to just leave that stuff intact and just kind of move people out of it. I guess this goes back to the social mobility question that we went to before. Uh, do we want to get rid of poverty or do we want to just change who is in it? Matt Brunig is the People Policy Project president. He was a National Labor Relations Board member and a policy analyst at the Demos Think Tank. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Thanks again to Matt Brunig. And if you want to hear a longer conversation, a few more minutes with Matt, just subscribe to the whole service. Hear this whole thing without ads. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. Try it free for a week. And now the spiel. Last week, lawyers representing Donald Trump in his election interference case in Georgia filed a motion aimed at impugning and perhaps disqualifying the county prosecutor, Fonnie Willis. At issue, the allegation that Willis had hired as a prosecutor in the case, Nathan Wade, who the filing asserts she's seeing romantically. For a week, neither Willis nor her office addressed the allegations. Then she, as per headlines, broke her silence. But not in an interview, not in a press conference, or maybe it was a press conference, but it was a press conference between Willis and one very important outlet, the Lord. Willis spoke in a recorded and since televised sermon at the Big Bethel AME Church, which had invited her for a service dedicated to Martin Luther King. Willis compared herself to Martin Luther King and asked the press, sorry, asked the congregation, again, sorry, asked the Lord, because that's who she was addressing, asked the Lord some questions about why her path has been so very beset by travails. I appointed three special counselors, is my right to do, paid them all the same hourly rate. They only attacked one. Isn't it them playing the race card? Well, it is true. The other two outside counselors on the case were paid the same hourly rate, but their hours were a lot lower than Wade's as Atlanta's NBC affiliate reported, though not from the pulpit of Big Bethel AME Church. Public records obtained from Fulton County show the amount each were paid differed substantially. Records indicate the DA's office paid Special Prosecutor John Floyd's law firm, Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore, close to $73,000 between 2022 and 2023. Special Prosecutor Anna Cross's law firms, Cross Kincaid and the Cross Firm, were paid a total of roughly $90,000 during the same years. Over the same time period, Fulton County records show the DA's office paid the law offices of Nathan J. Wade more than $650,000. 
According to Atlanta lawyer Andrew Fleischman, writing in the Daily Beast, Cross is a former assistant district attorney who's handled dozens of felony appeals, and John Floyd, quote, is widely considered Georgia's leading expert on state RICO prosecutions. In fact, turns out the guy helped write the RICO law. But Wade does have credentials, not just nobody, and Willis was sure to detail them. God, wasn't it them that attacked this lawyer of impeccable credentials? The black man I chose has been a judge more than 10 years, run a private practice more than 20, represented businesses in civil litigation. I ain't done, y'all. Served as a prosecutor, a criminal defense lawyer, special assistant attorney general, one Chief Justice Robert Benham Award from the State Bar of Georgia. You know, they ain't just giving this to black men. On the question of the Robert Benham Award, no, they're not just giving it to any black man, but they are giving it to many black men. In fact, the award is named for a black man, Judge Benham, and many black men have won the award over its 26 years. There are several awardees each year. In fact, in the year that Wade won, 2008, two other black men won the award as well. That's just a minor point. The major one is Wade's hiring. And here again, Willis cited double standards. was acceptable when a Republican in another county hired him and paid him twice the rate. Oh, y'all ain't hear me. In another county, the elected official has the authority to pay him twice the rate. Why is the white male Republican's judgment good enough, but the black female Democrats not? But as Fleischman points out in the Daily Beast, maybe they should have questioned the white Cobb County prosecutor because Wade did a poor job for him. I'll quote the Beast. The investigation was only launched to prevent the public from filing open records requests into deaths that they were investigating. At the hearing, Nathan Wade admitted that despite spending five months talking to deputies and investigating the issue, he had failed to keep a single note. Cobb County quickly settled and turned the papers over. And the white man who hired Wade to do that substandard job was incredibly alleged to be having an affair with the hired party. Fleischman's article is titled, Why We Can't Just Shrug Off the Fonnie Willis Scandal. And I get the framing, and I get the argument. And I also get why the Trump team would want to sully Willis's reputation in the name of PR. However, not as a matter of law, but of common sense, if they prove their case too well, that Fonnie Willis hired an unqualified person to prosecute Trump for purely venal reasons. Isn't that actually, if that circumstance is true, and we all believe it, isn't that actually good for Trump? Shouldn't the Trump legal team want a supposedly in over his head, Nathan Wade, at the prosecutor table? In fact, the Trump playbook is always to muddy the waters and not be led by sense, but a sense of constantly being wronged. Though I have to say in this case, it seems like the waters were kind of murky before the Trump team dipped in their toes, and the wrong was a bit more clearly in place than the usual Trump accusations of perfidy. And that's it for today's show. 
The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. That'd be Corey Wara, producer, Joel Patterson, senior producer, Michelle Pescas, in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise with us, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Umperu, Peru, Duperu, and thanks for listening. 